0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Carol Masser.
2: And I'm Tim Stenevec of Bloomberg Quick Take. Welcome to the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week.
1: Week 46, working from home, still for so many. We were at Bloomberg headquarters throughout the week, and it was a week of wild market moves thanks to the Reddit revolution. As retail investors and day traders, man, they went head-to-head with the big guys over GameStop, Tim, and a lot of others. We talked about this a lot this week. Uh,
2: This was the story (laughs) of the week, Carol, and I think it's going to continue. Look, uh, we were surprised to hear that Fed Chair Jay Powell was asked about this this week. Two of the three people who asked their questions first, two of them were focused on GameStop. We'll hear from the chairman and founder of Interactive Brokers on why they moved to restrict trading of these high flyers. Plus,
3: I don't know when the next pandemic will come, but there will be another pandemic.
2: Why we need to get ready for the next big virus from the CEO of Feinstein Institutes for Medical Research. That makes me so down. I know. I know. We're already thinking about the next one. Carol. We really need to.
1: And also coming up, Getting back to the high seas, we're going to need a bunch of patience for that as well. We're going to hear, though, from the CEO of Carnival.
2: All that to come, we begin with our cover story, a history lesson, and what that may portend for today. We know that the 1920s roared after a pandemic, so can we expect the same after the horrendous year of 2020? Bloomberg Economics editor Peter Coy writing about that for Bloomberg Business Week and joining us along with Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber.
4: We put it to Peter and did a little bit of a historical analysis to kind of paint a picture of, like, you know, could we have a repeat <laughs> of these 20s, yeah. you know, be like those 20s? And, and Peter, what, what, did you, what did you find? What was your conclusion? Probably not.
3: Hmm.
5: I mean, it would be nice, right? Uh, there are, but let me give you the optimistic take, first of all. Uh, w- there have been periods where productivity lagged and then suddenly jumped, and what the reason is that you have some general-purpose technologies. In the case of the 1920s, it was the automobile, the internal combustion engine, which was used in cars and trucks, and electricity, which electrification of factories and homes. Both those things paid dividends literally for years, even though it took a while before the big payoff came. So who knows? Maybe the 2020s will be the decade that. Uh, you know, biotechnology and digitization, computers, artificial intelligence, and so on, will finally start paying off big dividends. You see some intriguing evidence. The very fact that so many of us are working from home now successfully is a reflection of the ability of uh, video conferencing, cloud computing, and so on. It's just incredibly uh, productive use of new technologies. And then, uh, again, in medicine, we have The very fact that these vaccines were concocted and began to be distributed within a year is just incredible, and that's based on some new technologies that will be used in other medicines and vaccines in the future. So that's the optimistic take. So I just want to stick on that for a minute before we turn to the pessimism.
4: (laughs) And, and we'll get to the pessimism. I also want to just bring us, like, rewind to 1921 and the inauguration. Can you tell yeah. us about what that was like? Because that the similarities are, are yeah. pretty eerie sometimes.
5: It was a cold and windy day. <laughs> the uh, predecessor, in that case, Woodrow Wilson, was not on stage. Although it was not because he had gone to Florida, it was because he'd had a serious stroke and really wasn't very well. Um the president warren g harding spoke of unity it was a time of high unemployment and the u.s had just gotten through a global pandemic so a lot of parallels it was a bit of a somber occasion and yet uh uh inauspicious and yet it set the stage for as we know uh, a takeoff It start of that summer when we emerged from a recession and the rest is history Electrification, as I said, the automobile, radio, movies, on and on.
2: Right. Indoor plumbing, labor-saving yeah, appliances. One, yes. Yeah, those are all huge. Okay, so you gave us the optimistic case, Peter. Give us the pessimistic one.
5: Well, the pessimistic one is that we are have been stuck for a while in so-called secular stagnation, which is a term that comes from the 1930s, had been repurposed for the more recent period, where we have. Uh, kind of low productivity growth. We have um, low interest rates. It seems as though there's an excess of savings over desired investment. Um, And that's reflected in extremely low. We have negative uh, real interest rates, real meaning inflation adjusted, uh, out 10 years, uh, which tells you that there's just people are pessimistic. The rich got richer and the poor got poorer. In that case, the poor farmers did very badly in the 1920s. And that was a time when the agricultural workforce was a much bigger share of the population than it is now. So it really affected a lot of people. Um, factory workers did well because manufacturing was on the rise. Um, in contrast, it was a tough period. Rural American general, uh, a lot of immigrants had a tough time. It was very, it was, a, women had just gotten the vote. Remember, that was the uh, amendment that uh, brought women's suffrage in 1920. Um, Blacks, in some ways, African Americans, uh, we had the explosion of creativity and uh, culture with the Harlem Renaissance and so on, but there's also a lot of discrimination against African Americans. Um, And there were race riots, there were lynchings, there was a Ku Klux Klan rally in Washington, D.C. There were some dark sides, and there was also a lot of anti-immigration sentiment. Uh, The 1924 Immigration Act was actually a role model for none other than Adolf Hitler, uh, as horrible as that is to say. So, yeah, not all sweetness and light in the
2: 1920s. Look, Carol, whenever I hear anyone talking about the Roaring Twenties and looking back on how great they were, we have to remember there was a lot of history there that doesn't get focused on. And remember how it ended, 1929.
1: Right. Not so well. So you've got to remember that. All right. That was Bloomberg Businessweek economics editor Peter Coy writing about that for the magazine. And it's, of course, the cover story this week. Joining us along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber. Coming up, the story of the week, GameStop. We'll check in with the chairman and founder of interactive brokers who moved to restrict trading on that stock
2: and others you're listening to bloomberg business week this is bloomberg
0: this is bloomberg business week with carol masser and bloomberg quick takes tim Stenovic from bloomberg radio
2: one big story of the week and feels like it will already be a story of the year when we look back in december
1: yeah, the volatility and big moves that resulted also led to Interactive Brokers Group and other firms restricting trading of stocks that have run up rapidly over the last week. We talked about that with Interactive Brokers chairman and founder Thomas Petterfee, Interactive, by the way, a sponsor of Bloomberg Radio.
6: We are extremely concerned about the continuing viability of intermediaries, the clearinghouses, and the brokers. Now, why is that? Because on every option contract, there is a buyer and a seller. So, a number of for each number, each each option contract that that exists in the world, there is a loser and a and a winner. The broker stands between the broker and the clearing house stands between the winners and the losers. The broker has to collect from the losers, give it to the clearing house. The clearing house gives it to the winners. Broker and gives it to bro, winners. Broker gives it to the winner. The problem arises when the loser loses more money than is in his or her account, Mm -hmm. right? Now, there are currently um, 3 million options contracts outstanding on GAIN. The average option contract, since the stock has moved around so much, I estimate the average option contract is worth about $10,000. So on on 3 million contracts, half of them are worthless, half of them are worth on the average of $10,000. That's that's $15 billion of of winners and losers. Right. Right? So now the brokers have to collect from the losers and pay to the winners. If they can't, they have to put up their own money. Right? Right. So... Uh, luckily enough, we have a very large uh, um, capital base of nine billion dollars, and we have uh, automated liquidation systems. But many of other brokers do not have that.
2: But but
1: so, can I, if I, Thomas, if I can break in, and we should point out that Interactive Brokers is a sponsor of Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg TV. So it's not the case that traders were doing anything wrong or illegal. It's just a case of logistically there were going to be problems, right, in terms of clearing houses. So that's more an operational problem versus a market problem or traders doing something wrong, correct?
6: No, 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 not correct. So so short squeezes are illegal. Now, when when you buy a stock for $300 that a month ago was worth a failing company, right, as, you know, as basically a, a second-hand store for for video games, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it wasn't really worth, any, and it's not trading at, at $230, right? So your only motivation to buy that stock, which you know full well eventually will go down to $17, could be to join the short squeeze. Because why would the stock go up? Why is it worth $230? It's worth, under twenty dollars are, right
2: right are you are you guys closing out accounts are you closing closing out positions? We learned just minutes ago that Robinhood has told users that it may close some at risk positions
6: oh, oh, oh we have we have closed thousands of positions we have we had twenty seven thousand customers who were involved in in uh, g m e stock uh, either via the stock or via options and is this many a- of them of course yeah, many, many of them, uh, especially since we have, tend to have uh, professional customers that tend to be on the short side. So, yes, we closed out many of those positions.
1: And was a lot of the the uh, positions that you closed out, I mean, I'm, I'm curious about in terms of your business, how much is retail in- investors, individual investors versus bigger institutional clients?
6: So, well, it's hard to spell. Our, our average client account is, is, uh, rough, it's just under $300,000. So they are not your regular moments, pop uh, clients. But of course, many of them are smaller and many of them are much bigger. But uh, 300000 is just the average. We have uh, uh, 1.18 million customers. So
2: Yeah.
1: Hey, you know, Thomas, you know what's hard and I think we're trying to get our head about it. I have lots of conversations with, you know, big-name shops, too, and and investors who say, you know, we're increasingly trying to open up alternative investments to individual investors, give them access to the types of investments that the bigger institutional clients typically have. And yet, I feel like when a smaller retail investor, to some extent, acts like one of the big guys, all of a sudden, their hand gets slapped.
6: Uh, I, I, I So, I don't think that's true. So, Short squeezes are not legal. Now, mm. maybe many of the longs here do not know that they are participating in a short squeeze, but are- uh, that that that's the only issue I see that they inadvertently doing something that they shouldn't be doing. But it's it's really stupid to look at a stock and buy it at three hundred dollars, and you know that it's a, it's a little business, right? It's a it's a corner store.
2: Thomas, we only have uh, 15 seconds for this, but are you worried yeah. that there's going to be a PR impact from this and retailer traders will go to other trading platforms?
6: I don't think so, because our professional customer understands that we have to protect the marketplace for their sake and their money we have to protect.
1: Do you think regulators, just quickly, 20 seconds, have to get involved from Congress and others?
6: Uh, I think unless regulators come out and say that uh, trading should be in these stocks for liquidation only... yeah. It's uh, this is going to continue indefinitely, and
2: that's not good. Interactive Brokers Chairman and Founder Thomas Petterfi. We should note again that Interactive Brokers is a sponsor of Bloomberg Radio.
1: So while the investment community tries to understand the impact of the Reddit community, Tim, let's not forget that so much of this year's environment really depends on getting the virus COVID-19
2: under control. Right. We talk so often about how the recovery is so bound to the recovery of the virus. Mm-hmm. While doing so, though, we also need to be preparing for the next pandemic.
3: We will be better prepared if we learn from what we're going through now.
2: This is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio.
1: So in his annual letter, billionaire philanthropist Bill Gates outlined an ambitious plan to stop the next pandemic. Yes, folks, there will be another one. He's calling for a global alert system, massive testing, a cadre of 3,000 first responders ready to spring into action, and tens of billions of dollars of annual spending. I know we're not even through this one, Tim, but we've got to start thinking about the next one.
2: We're not. And look, I think we should listen to Bill Gates. This is a guy who was sounding the alarm about the pandemic for years before. I mean, he knew this was coming and he knew we weren't prepared. And look, one of our guests gets that and reminded us of the need to continue research into clinical trials and vaccines. He's Dr. Kevin Tracy, and he's professor at the Institute of Molecular Medicine, Feinstein Institutes for Medical Research, also professor of molecular medicine at the School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell Health.
1: And Northwell, we know, is a massive hospital system, and they've seen the strains and stresses of COVID-19 really from day one. And he talked to us, though, about what he's seeing in terms of the virus, especially when it comes to those less fortunate.
3: The virus has has been... Uh, brutal to uh, those in lower-income neighborhoods, multiple housing units, and to the elderly. And there's an enormous opportunity to double down in, in in what has to be done to vaccinating those populations, as well as looking at new therapies that we're going to continue to need even after the vaccines have been have been given out.
2: Dr. Tracy, we we're we're, we're seeing some conflicting news, right? We're seeing lockdowns and, and restrictions being, I shouldn't say lockdowns, but restrictions being lifted in certain parts of the country right now, California, New York, Well, at the same time, new strains are being discovered in, in multiple places. What's the right approach here for, for local states to take?
3: Uh, the, right, the right approach is to follow the, the, the masking of all individuals, maintaining social distancing and hand washing, and to focus on a coordinated deployment of the vaccine as soon as the supplies are available. That's the science-based approach.
1: Well, and it's interesting, too, you know, I think we're getting back to that core, and certainly Dr. Fauci has been impressing that the importance of, Tim, we saw it certainly I feel like over the weekend or since uh, the new administration has come in, uh, you can almost see some relief uh, among Dr. Fauci, just being able to focus on the medicine, it the seems science. He's more relaxed. <laughs> he definitely does. He definitely does. Um, and listen, the science kind of reveals all in terms of what we need to do.
2: Uh, Dr. Tracy, we, we, we sort of teased that you wanted, we're going to talk about the uh, next pandemic, and it's surprising to me that we're already thinking about the next pandemic. We haven't even gotten through this one yet. Um, are we going to be better prepared hopefully for the next pandemic and and why are you convinced there well when do you think the next one would be
3: i don't I don't know when the next pandemic will come, but there will be another pandemic and in fact we will be better prepared if we learn from what we're going through now so um, there's two, there's a couple of ways to think about this um, one way is to think of it as a Sputnik moment when Russia launched its first satellite it it, it terrorized um, military leaders in the U.S., and it terrorized civilians because it was unexpected and we were unprepared for, for a space race. But we, we as a country doubled down and led by an invest, major investments in science and research. We put a man on the moon before the decade was out, as, as JFK asked the country to do. We we it's because the country reacted in a cohesive and organized way to a, a perceived threat. We need to do the exact same thing now for the COVID response by investing more in, in federal dollars invested into research because it, this was not a surprise. Okay, this this was an expected event. Right. This well,
1: and, and forgive me for jumping in because like someone tweeting at me and saying, listen, we've had. The swine flu in '09. we had the Russian flu of the 70s, the Hong Kong flu of the late 60s. Um, you know, We've had flus along the way and we've had viruses that have been really difficult. I guess I mention it because I agree with you that the country has to focus on it, but the world really has to focus on it, right? If we're going to really get these under control, especially with the amount of flow and movement between countries um, and our economies depend on that, it really has to be a global effort.
3: I agree, Carol, a global effort and a global focus would be ideal, but we we may not be able to control the global focus, but we certainly have to double down on a U.S. focus. In in 2003, after the first SARS outbreak, I actually was uh, invited down to Washington on a very small panel, and we modeled what would happen if exactly a virus like COVID coming out of uh, China or Asia began to infect Americans. And the models we used uh, were more lethal than the current virus, which is not very lethal. The models we used projected 40% of the United States would have been, would have been dead by now. If mm. the, if, if, if the, so, so this was not a surprise. Right. And I was one of dozens of, of, of participants in reports recommending preparation for pandemics
1: That was Dr. Kevin Tracy, professor at the Institute of Molecular Medicine at the Feinstein Institutes for Medical Research, professor of molecular medicine at the School of Medicine of Hofstra Northwell Health. Listen, Tim, it's all about, listen, we've got to get through this one, but we've also got to think about... The next viruses to come.
2: And look, I'm optimistic that because we are living through this one, because we are getting through this one, we will see the other side. We're going to be able to handle the next one yeah. much better.
1: We're learning a lot.
2: I certainly hope so. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Bloomberg Businessweek. Up next.
7: It's been a tough time. It's a, t- it's a very yeah. difficult time for travel and
0: leisure.
1: Health concerns continue to plague progress towards getting cruise ships back to sea. We'll hear from the CEO of Carnival. That's coming up next.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio.
2: Uh, I know. To be able to travel, Carol.
1: Uh, I, am, I cannot wait. I mean, I haven't traveled in a year.
2: Um, raise your hand if you need a vacation. OK, we're both raising our hands. Let the record show. <laughs> the
1: whole audience has raised their hands as well. Uh, one of the hardest hit industries, Tim, we know by the pandemic, is anything and everything to do with travel and definitely the cruise industry. So to find out what kind of year we can expect in the cruise industry.
2: There's probably no one better to speak to than Arnold Donald. He's president and CEO of Carnival Corporation. You caught up with him at Bloomberg's The Year Ahead Virtual Summit. And in this excerpt, you talked with Donald about what it feels like to be a bellwether and the outlook, of course, for 2021.
7: It's been a tough time. It's a t- it's a very yeah. difficult time for travel and leisure, um, and obviously difficult time for crews. You know, we voluntarily paused way back in March of 2020, and here we are in January of 21, and we're still not sailing. We've had a few sailings um, over in Europe, but you know, very limited basis. So you know, to have a business with no revenue for such an extended period of time and a significant burn rate, because obviously um, we have to keep our ships operational. You can't set these ships up, they're not airplanes, you can't just put them in a hangar. Uh, You have to continue to operate them. And so it's been very challenging. On the other hand, um, the company's proven its resilience, our people have been fantastic. Uh, We have raised over $19 billion of capital in the past few months, all virtually, nobody in an office, not our people, not the investors, not the bankers, not the lawyers. And so some extraordinary things have happened. Plus, we got 90,000 crew members, Carol, back home at a time where there were no flights. There were, you know, borders were closed, et cetera. So that was a major ordeal, not to mention in the early days, uh, 250,000 guests plus as well.
1: Hey, what I wanted to ask you, Arnold, because I feel like go back a year ago, you folks, Carnival, the cruise industry was seeing, I think, the depth of the magnitude, the seriousness of what this virus was about, right? You were seeing it. Certainly you had passengers on the ship. You had employees you had to deal with. I just feel like you guys got an earlier window into how serious this could be. Do you feel like that there's any early windows that you are seeing right now that maybe the rest of the world is not?
7: Yeah, I don't know if we really had an earlier window, but clearly we were impacted because um, when countries closed their borders, we had ships at sea because this was evolving. Nobody understood it. Um, people were shutting down and, and we had to get people home. So that was a, a major episode for us. Um, our And maybe that's what I mean. And, and,
1: and maybe that's what I mean is that mm-hmm. you guys really felt the impact pretty quickly, yeah, pretty swiftly before a lot of other folks did and a lot of other industries did.
7: I think our return, unfortunately, is probably going to be slower than others. Um, And uh, it's because we have so many. If you take a cruise, you go somewhere. So everyone talks about CDC, which, of course, is critically important uh, in terms of having the confidence of CDC for us to sail. But we have to go to destinations. Those destinations have to feel comfortable. Uh, And we're not going to be able to start all at once. We're going to have to stagger our start. We'll start with a few ships at a time, et cetera. And so we'll be slower coming back, but we will come back. And depending when um, it's in the best interest of public health, you know, to sail uh, here in the U.S. and elsewhere in the world, um, we're cautiously optimistic, hopeful that we could have nearly all the fleet back sailing by the end of the year. Um, But obviously hotels and schools and other places where there is um, congregation of people um, are going, are already happening. And so, you know, they're kind of in front of us in terms of being able to see when things are coming back to normal.
1: You guys announced some, extending some of your pauses on your departures in the United States. So do me a favor, Arnold, take me to, you know, your first U.S. departure post-COVID. What does it look like and when do you, you know, fingers crossed, when do you think it might be?
7: Yeah, well. Those are great answers. I would love oh, great questions. I love <laughs> to have the answers to. But the reality is, you know, what it's going to look like is, um, you know, obviously there's going to be enhanced protocols on board, um, health protocols, because in this time frame, even with the advent of vaccines, even with the acceleration of low cost, rapid, more accurate testing, even with the advancement of treatments, um, you know, COVID is still still out there and, and about, and still impacting people. And so we're going to have to have elevated protocols for a period of time. Physical
1: distancing. What does that look, and, yeah,
7: what does that look like? Yeah. Yeah. And, and the good news is we've done it now in, in Italy and, and Germany, for example. And so uh, the guests for the guests, they have a great experience, but they are wearing masks. You know, there is an attention of physical distancing. It looks like when you go to the grocery store, wherever you go now, and there's a little spot on the floor that says, you know, stand six feet behind the person in front of you or something or in the airport right. or whatever. So so that's what it, you know, it's going to have those kinds of feels to it. But it'll still be a cruise. People will still be experiencing new places and new people and new destinations. Um, you know, we had our very high net promoter scores, you know, guest satisfaction scores on the cruises that we had in Italy and Germany.
1: I have to say, and, you know, you know, I spent some time with you guys, went on a cruise, just kind of went on an overnight. But, you know, part of the fun is there's a lot of people on those ships. I mean, they're yeah. massive. So I do wonder, does the new protocol mean that you have to limit the, the amount of passengers you have on a ship, at least for some time?
7: Well, we'll have to see. I think um, initially that'll probably um, happen to a degree as we practice the, the protocols with the crew and get them used to handling everything. Uh, we certainly did that with our early sailings in Europe. Um, but the right. ships are vast, as you know. You've been on them, and so you know. And so the most important thing is not how many people, but in those situations where you can have a congregation of, of people, um, you know, is there adequate room for distancing? Can we distribute, which we can, for dining and other things, to have the physical space like you have in restaurants where – and in places where you're allowed to eat inside in the U.S. today, and so there will probably be some limitation based on those types of things, but maybe not as much as people think. You know, um, our ships mm. initially will start slow, but um, chances are we'll be back to you know relatively full. occupancy just with different practices.
1: Are you going to require? Passengers who get on the ship, are you going to require employees to get COVID tests? Are you going to require vaccinations? I'm just curious how that comes into play.
7: Yeah, universal testing right now is required for the cruises, um, absolutely, right. for the ones we are operating. Vaccines are new, and so we have to see where that evolves. And we're going to listen to the medical experts around the world, just as we have on everything else, um, You know, the science and, and medical experts around the world, and then determine what makes the most sense. Um, you know, everything's still evolving as you well know, um, that, you know, there's still a lot of questions and unknowns, um, but yeah, we'll, we'll do whatever's in the best interest of public health. And, um, and, and you know, we don't want to do anything. We never have historically in the industry and in our company, certainly not, um, to do anything to compromise public health. And we certainly aren't in this situation.
1: Is there a little part of you arnold that is at all worried that 2021 looks a lot more like 2020 than maybe we're all setting up for
7: well here's the differences i see that cause me not to feel that way i feel early on in 21 you know obviously we're having a 2020 hangover of that kind of a yeah. thing and uh um, right, right. no question about that um but we have vaccines in 2020 we did mm-hmm. um, You know, we have some enhanced treatment um, protocols that most of 2020 we didn't have. Uh, We have much more testing availability and rapid testing and more accurate testing, which in most of 2020 we didn't. We have a much better understanding, although we're not fully knowledgeable about the virus, we have a much better understanding of the virus where in 2020 we didn't. So when I look at all those things, you know, I see 21, you know, with, with some optimism. But at the same time, realizing we have to continue to, you know, let things evolve and study and pay attention to the science first. And then secondly, you know, to our societal ability to, you know, um, both function as a society and have people feel comfortable in that function.
1: You mentioned at the top that you guys raised 19 billion dollars. There was debt, there was equity raises. Um, that puts you guys in a great position. Uh, it's really pretty impressive. And and do you feel like Wall Street has acknowledged your ability to do that? And I do wonder, do you anticipate that you could that you have to do any other kind of capital raises here in 2021?
7: Well you know what we've said you know publicly Albert at this point is we have raised over 19 billion dollars and that gives us a runway it gives us liquidity uh, to make it through all of 21 with zero revenues so if we Just remarkable. You know, have no revenues for the full year um, you know with a pretty hefty burn rate given the number of shifts we have and everything we can, we can get through the year so so that gives us time. And um, Mm. in terms of um, and we've already publicly said we have additional capacity for debt. Um, Obviously, um, as we move forward, we'll pay attention to the balance sheet. And if we determine it makes sense, we'll you know, we can do additional equity raise if if we need to. So so we have some flexibility, which gives us confidence we can sort of weather the storm. And, um, you know, it's not without sacrifice. It's not without some pain. You know, some of that debt was raised at, you know, pretty aggressive rates and so on and so forth, given the time and what the markets were like at the time. The market today seems to be, you know, somewhat better and so on. But, but the bottom line is, you know, it's not what I'll pay, it's not what I'll sacrifice.
1: Yeah, listen, Tim, it's all about getting it under control. Everybody is looking forward. But again, there's lots of questions about how long until we get there.
2: I'm ready to get there. (laughs) Me
1: too. All right. That was Carnival President and CEO Arnold Donald. Catch that entire conversation. It's in our extra podcast feed. You can find that at Bloomberg.com, on Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts. That wraps up the first hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. I'm Carol Masser.
2: And I'm Tim Stenovek. More ahead in our next hour, including 50 companies to watch for in 2021. Plus, how the MyPillow CEO will not stop trying to prove that Donald Trump got cheated.
1: You're going to love that story. Also, the US CEO of Collier's International on working from home and whether it's here to stay. We're going to talk about real estate.
2: And an iconic guitar company on surviving nearly two centuries. This is a fun one, Carol. It is indeed. This is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevich from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Hi, I'm Carol Masser.
2: And I'm Tim Stenevich from Bloomberg Quick Take.
1: Plenty ahead in our second hour of the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week, including commercial real estate. It was hit big time from the pandemic. We'll talk about what stays, what goes with the U.S. CEO of Colliers International.
2: Plus, Carol, uh, this story headline really mm. stuck out. Why pillow king Mike Lindell is never going to rest or shut up.
1: You're going to love that story. And... The CEO of the Martin Guitar Company on the Earth guitar. It's a thing. First up, though, let's take a look at some of the Business Week 50 companies to watch. The list, it is compiled by our Bloomberg Intelligence team, who track about 2,000 companies in fields including finance, retail, energy, and technology.
2: Our BI team considered such factors including company size and growth, opportunities, management changes, scheduled release of noteworthy products and services, and, of course, the impact of the COVID-19 pandemic and other seeping economic forces. Bloomberg Business
1: Week editor. Joe Weber, he's back with more.
4: There's way too many companies for us to figure out <laughs> on our own, and they basically take the you know universe of the two thousand companies that they track and basically put it through their spreadsheets until we come out with fifty that we think are really interesting to watch. And watch means not just um, buy or sell, it, it, where we have to be a little bit more ambivalent than that because they can't make calls, but you the investors and readers have definitely noticed i've had um uh, a portfolio manager ping me before and say not sure if you knew this or not but like 40 of the companies that are on this this year's list this was um a year back mm. um out, were outperforming their benchmarks mm. um, so, cool. so it's you know if you knew what you were doing you could go long on a few and short some others and, and probably uh look pretty smart past performance
2: is no indication <laughs> of uh, it's you true know, it's future true especially right? not right now yeah <laughs> Uh, so Joel, what, what is sort of the common thread that that runs through these 50 companies? I mean, because you have consumer staples on here, you've got materials, you've got healthcare you've got Boeing on here. Um,
4: what ties them together? There's a couple themes that I've noticed um, that I thought were were interesting to comment on. One is um, travel. Um, and I think you can see this with you mentioned Boeing there. Um, now that they're on the other side of of the Max um, debacle, uh we we it, it, once we see travel start to perk up we expect that um that that plane will be back in business which will be uh, you know a huge deal for for Boeing as well as for airlines I mean, there's also a couple of airlines on this list that I think are really interesting Cathay Pacific being one but also Wizz Air um there's another article in um this issue about European airlines where where Wizz operates um and Wizz was sort of a breakout um before and sort of all eyes on them to see if they can Come back to it. Um, so, so I, I thought that travel one was interesting because I, you know, I think we all sort of. Uh, innately expect that to be um, a sector that, you know, the moment that you're vaccinated and able to travel, I think a lot of people will.
1: Uh, yeah, sign me up, sign me up. Hey, you know, what's really cool too, it's it's some household names and then it's some companies that we don't really talk a lot about. Uh, and that's what kind of makes this interesting. Oh, come interesting. on,
4: you've never heard of some of these companies, right? Like, and that's, <laughs> I've that's never heard goal. of Wizz Air. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if we if we only told you about GEs, it's like, yeah, right. I, thanks for providing some service. So, so we really try to dig when we we put this list together yeah. so that it's you know you get a combination of ones that you've heard of ab and bev for example but we pair that with uh um you know not only an international um quotient but but just sort of the the sense of discovery so that you know everybody's heard of tesla but you know perhaps you haven't heard of you know, somebody like Albemarle, which is in the lithium business. And if you're looking for EV exposure, like something like that makes a lot of sense. So, I was just talking I, about I,
1: Albemarle at dinner. I'm just going to tell there you. There <laughs> you go. And
4: now you can talk about it, you know, over the weekend <laughs> whenever you're, you know, having remote dinners with friends or whatever. Um, you know, but back to the other themes that I thought were really interesting. Another one, I don't know if you guys noticed this, how much China plays a role in here. Um, yeah. and, and there are domestic companies. Uh, there are companies that have more international exposure, but when you go through the list, it's really impressive just how much, um, China factors into everything.
2: Yeah. Um, are there other regional variations here? I mean, did you, did you sort of put parameters on when you talked to the team at, at, at Bloomberg intelligence, or do you say, Hey, these are 2000 companies. Um, we want to
4: know which 50 you think should be on the list so we we do have um, we basically just want to make sure that we have regional exposure so if we if we talked about fifty and didn't account for for Europe or Asia, especially um, out, off this year we you know it wouldn't be an interesting list mm. so so we definitely we don't set any hard rules. Uh, we kind of let the data speak, but we definitely just make sure that we we have that um, regional exposure in addition to to everything else. Um, I do think like the I think we're a little overweight on on Asia, um, and that is for a good reason because yeah. um, you know another company that you know totally was an obvious one when you kind of sit back and think about it was like Nintendo, right? Mm-hmm. Nintendo is. Um, got a new Switch coming. We're all still locked at home and looking for, you know, <laughs> new consoles. that We had, uh, you know, the, the Sony-Microsoft war tends to kind of lead first, but then Nintendo comes from behind and everybody ends up playing Switch, it seems. So we'll see if that one proves true. Um, so so that's just a, another. The PayPal one is interesting because we've seen, uh, you know, there's so many players there, but then it's a, it's a, it's a space where it feels like entrenched players like like a paypal may have sort of an unfair advantage um, so the fact that they've navigated so many security stuff for so long that everyone's paying remote already uh they seem like a really interesting one to keep an eye on um and the numbers there are, are just really interesting to see you know sales growth you know go up 15 it just told the, the circumstances place straight to them.
1: Well, and speaking of sales growth, uh, Twilio, Jeff Lawson, uh, co-founder, CEO, got a new book out um, and we talked about some of that growth. I mean, they had an unbelievable 2020 and he's pretty upbeat, you know, once again for 2021. Uh, But it's a name that we've talked about a lot here, Joel.
4: Yeah. And they're interesting. It's a, it's a, that omni-channel play, a super convenient um, business software.
1: That was Bloomberg Business Week editor, Joel Weber.
2: Check out the full list and the metrics by checking out the year ahead issue. Online at Bloomberg.com and, of course, on the Bloomberg.
1: And, Tim, a few real estate-related companies, they are on that list of 50 companies to watch. And speaking of real estate, we're going to check in with the U.S. CEO of Collier's International, get some ideas on how this year is shaping up.
2: This is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenevich from Bloomberg Radio.
2: Carol, COVID has shuttered thousands of U.S. restaurants, gyms, and stores. It's kept office workers at home. It's left hotel rooms sitting empty. All of that, of course, leaving commercial real estate trying to rebuild a solid foundation.
1: Yeah, Tim, there's definitely been winners and losers when it comes to real estate and the impact the pandemic has had on overall real estate. And to help us understand exactly where we are, I caught up with the U.S. president and CEO of Colliers International. We're talking about Gil Barak. And like so many guests, we had to kick things off talking about What has the world has been like and where we are one year into the pandemic?
8: Look, I think uh, we're doing fine. Um, It's been a long year for all of us, or a long 11 months. Um, And I think that you know, sort of where we are, we're closer to the end than the beginning. That's the good news, right? The Mm -hmm. vaccines are rolling slowly, but they're rolling. Uh, And I think that most people are uh, quite um, encouraged by that and encouraged about uh, the fact that we should be returning to some sense of normalcy uh... by the middle of the year and into the back half of the year and so things are looking up and they didn't end as badly as some might have predicted sort of when the crisis hit us in march and april last year there was activity uh... and there was uh... some sense of Uh, optimism, you know, again, toward the end of last year. Clearly, we didn't perform last year like we did in 2019, but things did gradually start to get better, and that trend seems to be continuing. Is that
1: true around the world? I mean, I know you focus on U.S. properties, but you guys are international. Uh, Is it kind of the same story everywhere, or it depends on the market? I mean, I know real estate is location, 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 and it's a very local story, but I'm just curious.
8: Yeah, no, to, to everything I've heard and, and read from my colleagues, you know, across the ponds um, is that they're feeling sort of generally the same way. There is enthusiasm, activity is picking up. Um, and, um, you know, there are pockets, obviously, there are things within the industry, things like industrial, which I think is fairly common now that anybody that follows the space, industrial real estate is having, you know, COVID's been a silver lining for them, right? It's, it's been because of e-commerce, mm-hmm. And you see this globally, the demand for that type of real estate has really uh, been the opposite of most other asset types because of the, the e-commerce growth.
1: Are you seeing any bankruptcies with any of your properties? Because I'm trying to get my head around that because I think that was the story we thought was coming, was coming, was coming in 2020 uh, and, and expectations as restaurants shut down, as retail shut down. Uh, and I'm just curious, are you guys facing some bankruptcies with any of your properties or are you seeing any of that?
8: we re- it's really de minimis um, there okay. was a lot of talk and this is not dissimilar to 2008 2009 the distressed debt is coming the the special servicing needs are coming and it's going to be a wave and that wave didn't happen yes there clearly there are properties that are distressed there are there are problematic situations they are higher than what they are they normally are in normal times but it hasn't been at least from what we've seen it hasn't been a, a huge wave yet Um, I don't know what the next few months hold as stimulus checks are coming out again. But whether, you know, if if um, if we don't see some improvement uh, in terms of 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 stimulus and in terms of um, the 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 crisis receding through vaccination, uh, right, then the longer it goes on, the harder it is going to be for people to, to keep going. But so far, it's been manageable. Easy for me to say, right, <laughs> if, not, if I haven't been in, uh, directly impacted.
1: Well, I, I mean, does that change? Does that any of that? I mean, you say that you see that we're closer to the end than we are at the beginning, but I do wonder, do you think that there will still be some fallout of properties just because the world is changing when it comes to real estate?
8: I, I think there will be, and I think it would be you know remiss of me to say that, or putting my head in the sand, if I didn't say, look, I think the way that for example office that's the big elephant in the room right how is mm-hmm. office going to uh, come back and in what fashion and how is demand going to be well it's a, it, it's it's a mixed bag you see some new developments that are 50 and 60 and 70% already pre-leased and i think it depends on where they are and what type of um, you know office space you have so new is generally good and popular old is probably going to struggle more um, you know, because we will work a bit differently. And I think we will see people working uh, more remotely than they have historically. And the, the the trend will be a downward trend in demand, uh, you know, offset by when the economy recovers and starts to grow again and there's right. more demand for space. So there are going to be some lasting impacts, particularly, I think, in the office arena.
1: So, Gil, let me ask you, um offices wide open spaces right that has just been the thing at bloomberg it's been in our culture from day one this whole idea of open spaces and no real offices um and then we saw it really take off with all of the tech companies right it was the cool thing the right thing to do and everybody got away from offices will we stay with it do you think that changes significantly
8: yeah in the short term conventional wisdom would suggest that that's probably not a good idea to be guest sharing right and to be so close to each other without some kind of plexiglass separation, I think it remains to be seen because if you reconfigure offices, there is a capital cost to doing that. And I think that in the short term anyway, my own sense is uh, we can manage it a different way. So for example, have half the employees come in on Monday and Wednesday and the other half on Tuesday and Thursday. Uh, A lot of people want to work remotely a little bit anyway after the pandemic. And that's sort of a, uh, you know, and a lot of people can work remotely quite effectively. So I think we're gonna come back in stages and it sort of does remain to be seen what the long-term holds. I think we'll get back to it. I think there is a camaraderie and a productivity uh, to having open offices. I think people like it and have gotten used to it and if it weren't for the pandemic, uh, you know, nobody would think twice about it. So there'll be some, I think some short-term, short to medium-term restraint on that type of setup. But I think over time, we, you know, we can evolve back to it, particularly if the vaccines are effective.
1: All right. so. What about retail? We just did a story about a mall out in Vegas. Yeah, um, and it's not a new story, Gil, right? Like, we've been talking about it for a year. We're over-stored. We're over-malled. Uh, yep. And I do feel like mall developers are getting a little bit more strategic in terms of where they put a mall. So what's what What do we continue to see on that front?
8: Yeah. So I think, you know, retail is um, – it, 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 it has obviously suffered, uh, and that, and and it has for years, as you say – And the pandemic obviously accelerated and deepened that suffering, if you will. But I think that uh, malls that offer an experience, and it used to be that you'd think of that, okay, that has to be an outdoor mall. Not necessarily so, because you have some of these new malls that have been developed. Unfortunately, maybe not quite gotten off the ground because of the pandemic, but they have attractions, whether that's roller coasters or, or attractions for kids or whatever it is. Uh, those draw crowds and, of course, then they shop, right? And so mm-hmm. I think if it's a new mall, if it's an exciting mall, if it's in a good location, uh, maybe good restaurants when we get back to normal, those I think are ultimately going to be fine. The malls are the type you're talking about in somewhat of a remote location. It's not entirely remote because a lot of cars, there's a lot of
4: car traffic, traffic and,
8: yeah. and outlets. People would stop on the way to Vegas. It makes sense, but they're not surviving very well in the pandemic.
2: That was Gil Borok, the US president and CEO of Colliers International.
1: Still to come on Bloomberg Business Week, what's going on with the Pillow King? He is CEO Mike Lindell.
2: Uh, so many questions <laughs> about the Pillow King. This is Bloomberg.
0: This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio.
1: Ah, pillow king Mike Lindell. Well, you know him from those late night commercials. Uh, I got to say, he's never going to rest or shut up, at least according to the story in the magazine.
2: Look, as reporter Josh Dean notes, you can laugh at him, shun his business, sue him. The MyPillow CEO won't stop trying to prove Donald Trump got cheated.
1: Josh joining us on the phone in New York, along with Bloomberg Businessweek editor Joel Weber on the Access Line in Brooklyn.
4: Backstory here, (laughs) four years ago, Josh Dean wrote basically the definitive story on Mike Lindell. And just the preposterous business success story um, that that is my pillow. And mm-hmm. this is a guy who went from basically being a crack addict um, to uh, an unlikely entrepreneur with actually like a pretty successful business. Um, and Josh actually did that story four years ago for the magazine, and it happened to coincide basically with the first couple visits that Lindell had with Trump. And obviously, if you know anything about Mike Lindell, the past four years um, have become much Trumpier, um, let's say. <laughs> and uh, so when uh, the, the administration was in its last days, we kind of reached out to Josh and said, what do, you, what do you think about getting back in touch with Mike Lindell? And so that led to a pretty memorable conversation that Josh had with him and this feature. Um, Josh, what was, the, what was the opening question? How did the conversation start with, with Mr. Lindell? I don't even know if I needed to ask a question. <laughs> I, think
9: I, I think I just said hello. <laughs> off and, and he running.
1: Started,
9: started just going. I mean, that man is, um, I think I said in the original story, you know, he's he's been off cocaine and crack now for a long time, but it's like his body is permanently stuck in a, in a cocaine mania. Like, I, I don't think he's used drugs in a long time, but he talks like someone who who maybe just did it for so long that he can't he can't control himself anymore.
1: Well, so listen, though, he's definitely an ally of Donald Trump. We know that. And you lay it out really well. Why has he continued to be so adamant, despite the court cases that have shown that there was no fraud in the election? Why has he, and I know this is when he was often running and talking with you, why has he, though, continued to say there was fraud?
6: I mean, he's, he's
9: just one of those people who's so convinced of of something that no amount of information or evidence would ever change his mind. I mean, he would tell you, you know, for hours on end that that he's 100 percent convinced and that he has this, you know, quote unquote, forensic evidence of machine hacking and all this stuff. And unless he's completely doing this for show, and I don't think that he is, he truly believes that, you know, he's here to save Donald Trump's presidency and to Mm save democracy
2: well josh i was so surprised to to read that he's not concerned at all by this uh what you call a big danger the dominion voting systems uh, having threatened him with a defamation suit uh you write that a decision in dominion's favor could destroy my pillow as a company uh why is he not concerned about this this is a big deal
9: yeah i mean here is probably the 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 most convincing evidence that he truly believes what he's saying that it's not some kind of act because yeah i mean this is a potentially an existential threat to my pillow like a a, a decisive judgment and we're talking like you know i think dominion's going after these these defendants for hundreds of millions of dollars if they choose to sue him um and he loses then he could lose the company but he thinks that he's right so he believes as he as he tells it I'm gonna to go to court and I'll present my evidence and I will prevail. I mean, it's mm. from the outside, objectively, it seems crazy and self-destructive, but he doesn't see it that way. Uh,
4: what do you have to say about how his business has been doing? Because there was this photograph taking, taken of him uh, leaving the White House with what appeared to be um, some papers that referenced martial law uh, and and I'm curious, like, A, what do you say about that, and then B, how has is, how is business been doing?
9: Well, the martial law thing, he said those were not his notes. So basically he was going to see Trump to present his, you know, quote-unquote evidence of, of, like, election fraud, and then a lawyer friend of his, who he wouldn't name, gave him a second set of notes that included um, that martial law reference. So he's like, I don't even know what martial law is. That wasn't me. Um, as for the business, he's... You know, again, he, he thinks that this is good for his business. And, and it may be. I mean, in the short term, he says sales are up. He's hiring more people. He's actually added floor space because, you know, I think there's probably everything is political today. Right. So yeah. people may be buying pillows as a reaction to what they see as like left wing blowback.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. Is he really a buddy of Donald Trump's?
9: No, I mean, I asked okay. him, I said, have you, talk, have you talked to the president? No, it's like I don't have his phone number. We've only met a handful of times, but I mean, he loves. Wow. The guy. He thinks, thinks Trump is amazing.
2: That was Josh Dean reporting for Bloomberg Businessweek. See if you can spot this one. <laughs>
1: All right, everybody, grab a snack, a cup of coffee. I already got (laughs) one. Good to know, because coming up, we're going to check in with the head of an iconic brand in the music industry that survived. Check this out, Tim—nearly two centuries.
2: Yeah, this is the one I know you were very excited Mm -hmm. for, Carol. This company makes guitars used by some of the biggest names in the history Mm -hmm. of music. I'm talking Eric Clapton, Bob Dylan, Johnny Cash, Elvis Presley, and more. You're listening to Bloomberg Businessweek. That's next. This is Bloomberg. Uh
0: is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Bloomberg Quick Takes Tim Stenovic from Bloomberg Radio
1: So that's the weight by the band. The lyrics, I pulled into Nazareth. Well, that has to do with Martin Guitar and where it's based. Robbie Robertson of the band noted that once, Tim, while searching for inspiration for a song, he actually looked inside his Martin Guitar. I love this story. He saw the words made in Nazareth, which happens to be where the Martin Guitar Company is
2: based. Carol, I had no idea (laughs) until I heard that. Thank you, Google. (laughs) Amazing. Chris Martin is CEO of the company. He took over from his grandfather, keeping the company all in the family.
10: I am the sixth generation. I'm C.F. Martin the fourth. Two of my ancestors were named Frank for some reason.
1: Okay, because I was doing some research, and I was trying to make sure I had the count uh, right. How are you, and, and what's the past year been like for you guys?
10: Well, you know, um, Pennsylvania, the governor basically shut the state down in, a, in about a week. So every day, it's like, okay, tomorrow we'll do this, and then tomorrow, was like, oh, no, we're going to do this and this, and by the end of the week, we were closed. And I, thought, I said to my colleagues, because I've been through guitar booms and busts for a variety of reasons, often economic, sometimes cultural. And I said, all right, let's just go for break-even. If we can, you know, we'll bring the business down. We'll, we'll unfortunately, you know, we'll have to lay off a bunch of people. They'll get unemployment right. and we'll go to break-even. And then all of a sudden the phone started to ring. And it turns out that when people were stuck at home, they really wanted to buy a guitar <laughs>
1: did that was that april may like how quickly did that
10: start so, yeah. so february march okay. by april we we kept petitioning the governors like the governor people want our product can we can we go into the warehouse can we just get a half a dozen people into the warehouse to ship the product that's on the shelf mm-hmm. and they said okay only a half a dozen with the protocol wear a mask take their temperature s- social distancing right And then we put together a protocol. You know, we have a 40-page book Hmm. about this is the way we're going to reopen the business. And we showed that to the state of Pennsylvania. And they said, huh, all right, you seem to be serious about wanting to get back into business. And I think that helped allow the state of Pennsylvania to say, hey, some of these firms that are really trying to to be diligent about the virus should go back to work. So I've been working from home. Mm-hmm. But my dedicated colleagues who actually make the guitars are in the factory making guitars because we're back
1: Okay. So let's talk about the kind of demand that you've seen. You're back-ordered. Yeah. Tell me what normal orders in a non-pandemic world have been, were like for you guys, and then what it's been like post-pandemic, and everybody's like, I'm home, I want to play yeah, guitar. Yeah.
10: So, you know... It- from you go from Obama to Trump, the economy's been pretty good, yeah. and so you know we benefit. You know, and people have some discretionary money. But uh, this demand, and it's not just Martin. It's everyone who makes some kind of musical instrument that you can play at home. Right now, they're backordered. We're all we're all scrambling. We're all like, okay, we're trying to catch up. And and the real challenge is to allocate the scarce product that we have uniformly across our customer base around the world.
1: Right. Hmm. Well, that's interesting, right? Because you had global demand. Um, yeah. How many? Give me an idea. We're, you know, Bloomberg. We're into, you know, how how many guitars? And I know you guys have a bunch of different uh, guitars, yeah. uh, but how many can you produce in a week? And is it all handwork, or it's a mixture of hand and? and uh, it,
10: it's, yeah. a, it's a combination. Yeah, that's what I thought. Um, my family's business has always respected technology. And one of my competitors, I will say this honestly, Bob Taylor, got a jump on us in terms of using computer numerically controlled routing machines, which really make the early part of the manufacturing process very efficient. And we got religion. So I often joke when I give a factory tour that my ancestors, if they could come back and see the factory that they left me. Yeah their head would spin. They'd be, but they are. ultimately, they are put together by hand. Right. No, one, no one, I don't care where you make guitars, no one has invented the guitar put it well, together machine.
1: I'd love to get an idea of a business like yours. And you say you respect technology. And so it's a combination of technology and people putting the guitars together. I think you said you get about 185 out in a week. Talk to me a little bit more about that.
10: Well, we have two factories. We have the main Mothership, I call it, in Nazareth. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, my my great-great-great-grandfather started his business in Lower Manhattan Right. in 1839, moved to Pennsylvania, and then early in my career... Hudson
1: Street, if I recall, if I read it right. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. we
10: opened up a sister facility in Mexico, a Maquilladora. Yeah. And so at that facility, we make all of our Martin guitar strings, and we make what I'll call a medium-priced Martin guitar. And so we actually do more volume because the price is lower. So we're doing about 400 units out of that factory a day.
1: Wow. that's yeah, pretty... I, I
10: don't know where they're all going, but they're going somewhere.
1: <laughs> well, it's interesting. So what do you expect? Do you, you know, anticipate? I mean, you've got to feel good about the demand that we're seeing. You wish sure. it was not against yeah. uh, a health pandemic. Right. But I think one of the things that we ask about a lot of businesses is, do you anticipate that this continues? Because once the world opens up, right, yep. all of a sudden, yeah. we have a lot of challenges for our time again.
10: So yes, uh, a good friend of mine, Brian Majeski, he and his brother have a, a trade publication, Music Trades. Mm-hmm. And Brian was involved last week in, a, in an event at our virtual trade show. And Brian made the prognostation, whatever that word is, You know, he's, he's, he likes to <laughs> analyze data and then from the analysis kind of tell you what he thinks might happen. And he said, I think that people, not everyone, but enough people are going to continue to work from home, maybe not every day, but often enough, that they will still want to buy guitars because they have some free time, you know, in, be- in between work. You're doing, you're doing Zoom calls all day. You've got 20 minutes break before your next call. And how many times have we seen, we're seeing, you know, someone on TV and doing a Zoom call and in the background's a guitar?
1: A lot of times. Yeah.
10: So they pick it up. They've got 20 minutes to, to just do something else and then go back to
1: work. <laughs> Well, I have to say, uh, my husband loves to play guitars. good uh, heart, yeah. guitar, He has a few of them. Um, and he's got... Um, you
10: can never have enough. You know?
1: I know that. That's what he tells me. <laughs> I say that about shoes and that's why we have a happy marriage. <laughs> um, but he has uh, a Martin and the acoustic sound is just pretty incredible. I think it's a 28, uh, zero, zero, uh, sorry, 28. That's yeah. our
10: bread and butter guitar.
1: Yeah, and it's just a, a beautiful sound. Um, you know, it's interesting too that I wonder, and, and talk to me because you guys too a lot of things that we've talked about over the past year is companies innovating being disrupted and i do wonder whether it's digital online if you're seeing you know you grow your business that way even more because of what's happened the pandemic and talk to me too about you guys are creating an earth guitar, or an environmentally friendly guitar, which I think is another bigger trend that's coming out of the pandemic that we're all thinking a lot more about, especially as the world shut down, right? And all of a sudden there was clean air, or just, or we saw the fires in California, like we're just thinking a lot more about our environment.
10: So the first question, what we've seen at the retail level is the retailers that already had a robust online presence have done better Mm. than the brick and mortar retailers. Some do both. Some came from a digital world and then did brick-and-mortar. Most came from brick-and-mortar and, mortar and did, did a digital world. But the ones that can do both, because people are going to want to go back into a music store. There's something about hanging out in a music store, right. playing a guitar, talking to other guitar players, maybe buying something. But in the meantime, you can't do that. The other thing, what I've seen in just in my career is that you know we use these, they're called rare exotic woods for a reason. hmm and we need to find alternatives, and we need to take better care of the rare exotic woods. And so we've partnered with the Forest Stewardship Council, and they audit us. They come in annually, and they want to make sure that when we say we've bought this wood legally, they, they come in and they say, prove it. We want to see the paperwork. We want to see the... the and so that's what the earth guitar is. It's a way of us saying, mm-hmm. you can buy these rare exotic woods, and you can buy them legally and correctly, and and that's that's what it's really all about. Is uh, there's still illegal logging going on? There's still you know wood that gets sold nefariously. I want no part of that, and I don't think any guitar should have. I don't think anything made out of wood should have any illegal wood in it. So it's still
1: a big concern,
10: you know. And you look right. over, you know, you look in some parts of the world, and a hundred dollar bill will buy you a lot of illegal wood.
1: Yeah, I can imagine that. And listen, the the way of consumers, you know, they care about this stuff and they're increasingly Good. asking I'm glad the questions. I'm glad for that. Yeah. Me too as well. So, what is this Believe in Music Week?
10: So, it was our we had to pivot. Mm-hmm. Normally, it would be our traditional big international trade show as part of our trade association in Anaheim. Can't do it, right? Yeah, right. Not going to happen. And Joe, the CEO of NAM, said Chris I don't want to sit this one out. I said, Joe, we can't. He said, if we sit it out, we're going to lose people. We're going to lose the connection that our association brings to all of the tribe. And so this was our digital show. And what it's turned out to be, as Joe said the other day, he said, you know, it's not the same as a physical trade show, but boy, in terms of connecting all of us that haven't seen each other in a year, yeah, it's done a really good job.
2: That's Chris Martin IV, CEO of the Martin Guitar Company. Check out the full conversation on our podcast feed.
1: And that wraps up the weekend edition of Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Carol Masser. And
2: I'm Tim Stanovic. Be sure to tune in to our Bloomberg Business Week daily show Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg Radio.
1: You can also watch our daily broadcast on YouTube. Just search Bloomberg Global News.
2: And check out our Bloomberg Business Week podcast. You can find that at Bloomberg.com, Apple, or wherever you get your podcasts.
1: And Tim, that's where you'll also find our extra podcast this week. It's with Arnold Donald, President and CEO of Carnival Corporation. I caught up with him at Bloomberg's The Year Ahead Summit, a gathering of leaders really to talk about what's going on this year. Find that conversation at Bloomberg.com, Apple, wherever you get your podcasts.
2: And you can also see me on Bloomberg Quick Take, available on Bloomberg.com slash QT and streaming platforms like Roku, Apple TV, Samsung TV, and more.
1: At 9 and noon every day. Bloomberg Business Week, it's available on newsstands now at Bloomberg.com and on the Bloomberg Terminal. Have a great weekend, everyone.
2: This is Bloomberg.